Hey, how's it going everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 39 of the Essential X Lapsed, where we've got, well, we've got an issue. <laughs> um, it's about the best I can say about it. Uh, we do have an issue. We have a story to discuss today. And, uh, hmm, well, I think, you know, we've talked a little bit about how uneven this uh, the Roy Thomas run is, where sometimes we get something really good, sometimes we get something that's not, <laughs> and, uh, here we are with something that, in my opinion, is not. Uh, let's just get right into it here. This is X-Men number 29, February 1967, covered it. The story's called When Titans Clash. Written by Roy Thomas with pencils by Werner Roth. Inks by John Tartaglione. Letters Sam Rosen. Colors by... Uh, somebody. Our skating instructor is Irving Forbush, which is very, very important. And our edits are by Stan Lee. This one had a cover price of 12 cents American. So, our cover is, uh, well, not all that encouraging. It's the Mimic fighting the Super Adaptoid. <sighs> okay, and <laughs> our story opens with the X-Men taking a break from, uh, well, all the rest of the breaks that Professor X gives them in order to hit the frozen pond behind the school to engage in a bit of ice skating. Turns out, ironically enough, that our very own Kid Cool is the worst thing ever to lace up a pair of blades. Now Beast, he's making fun of Bobby for nearly cracking his head open before making quite the fool out of himself as well. Now it's worth noting here, and this is very nitpicky, but Hank's feet look very tiny in his skates. So, in attention to detail? Eh, perhaps. I mean, we don't have any beatniks writing songs about tiny feet, so what are you going to do? Now off to the side... Our love triangle heats up some more, as Warren and Jean go hand-in-hand to do a couple skate. Jean asks if Scott can join them, to which we learn that old Psych Dunn accidentally forgot his ice skates back in his room. And of course, there's nothing accidental about it. He has cursed eyes, of course, and he, uh, he is scared to get too close to Ms. Gray. It's worth noting, Cal Rankin is here too, and he's just as Cal Rankin as ever. From here, we walk away with our friend Slim Summers as he laments his deadly, cursed eyes. He's also still quite upset with himself that he blasted Warren in the back a few issues ago during the whole cool, cool can thing. Now, Scott gets far enough from the rest of the crew to test something out. You see, the professor has given him a little bit of hope that one day he might be able to mentally control his optic blasts. And so, <laughs> for no reason at all, Scott wonders if that day might just be today. Spoiler alert, it ain't. Scott then removes his, uh, well, nebulously crafted, specially made glasses, and you know what? It actually turns out he can stop his blasts with his eyelids, which is good news, right? He will still have eyelids, which is a good thing. But no sooner does he pry open his peepers than he looses a tremendous blast of optic energy. Annoyed, our hero then throws a bit of a temper tantrum, starts blasting all over the place, and even causes an avalanche. Scott lets out a holy henna, which I will definitely do the next time I cause a great big chunk of earth to topple onto itself. Our man rushes away from the rampaging mountain and manages to narrowly avoid being smothered to death. He's thankful that this area was so desolate. I mean, it's like a like hundred yards away from the mansion, right? But it's desolate enough that nobody was injured. And, you know, I'm sure an insect or two probably got squished, which, if Nature Girl were around, would be a pretty big problem, but uh, <clears throat> we don't talk about that here. Now, here's the thing about desolation. An area may look completely abandoned, completely empty, but 
that doesn't always account for the things that are under the ground. And in this case, it just so happens that there's a network of tunnels and bunkers which date back to the Revolutionary War just below the surface. You'd think Professor X would know about those. I, I don't know. It's here where our uh, big bad, the Super Adaptoid, is hiding out. I, I'm not even sure he's really hiding. He's kind of just lounging in a chair, kind of looking like, like Darkseid waiting for Scott Free to come home or something. Though he does express a bit of a concern, or he or it, I guess, expresses a bit of a concern that the agents of AIM may have come in order to reclaim their control over him. Okay, so you might be asking who or what in the hell is a Super Adaptoid? Well, Super Adaptoid first appeared in Tales of Suspense number 82, July 1966, cover date, created by Stan Jack and Gene Colan, and it's a robot of sorts, uh, made of unstable molecules with just a dash of the Cosmic Cube. It's created by AIM, of course. Now, its first outing was against Captain America and the Avengers, where it proved to be able to mimic the abilities of Earth's mightiest. Huh. Mimic, you say? Now, right now, it has the powers and abilities of Hawkeye, Captain America, Goliath, and Wasp. Now, it actually believes that it had killed Captain America at this point, and, hey, spoiler alert, it did not. And so the Adaptoid rises and emerges from the, um like, wide-open cave that it was hiding in. I thought this was going to be, like, a little hatch with a ladder or something. You know, something really, really tiny and, and hidden and perhaps inconspicuous. But no, it's a giant cave. <laughs> I mean, this thing is ten feet tall. And it just walks out of this giant cave that's, you got to imagine, not too far from the mansion. I don't know, this seems like a rather unsecret place to uh, hole oneself up in. Anyway, meanwhile, the X-Men minus Cyclops continue their rendition of the opening scene of the Charlie Brown Christmas special. Bobby, he still slips sliding away, and the rest of the gang decides to leave him to it as they head back to the mansion. And uh, Cal Rankin continues to Cal Rankin all over the place, which is to say, he's an a-hole. Now, once the rest of the crew is gone, Bobby, uh, well, he strips down to his tidy whities and booties like you do. Then he ices up and skates on the bottom of his soles which is pretty much exactly what I do on my hardwood floors every time the uh, wife leaves me home alone, so I, I can relate. Now, he's spotted by all ten feet of the Super Adaptoid, who is quite impressed by this boy's ability to ice up, and even suggests that he might make for a new Adaptoid unto himself, which I don't really understand. Um, and we're going to get a bit more of this as we continue, but it really never gets any clearer to me. I think uh, saying that you can be an Adaptoid or... Whatever is a little nebulous. It's one of those things I think we just have to accept, or maybe I'm just too dense to understand it. I, you know, I'm, I am a man of science, just not that kind of science. So since this is a comic book, the Adaptoid attacks. But it misjudges the strength of the ice that covers the pond, and so it falls right through. Bobby then uses Iceman Tactic A, which is uh, encasing the big bot in a layer of the frosty stuff. Bobby then ice slides away to let his partners know about this big green threat. Soon as Iceman's out of sight, the Adaptoid busts out of his icy prison. And you see, he was just letting Iceman think he'd bested him here. He, you know, Iceman never really stood a chance, which is kind of the way things go with Iceman. The big bot then follows the ice blocks left in the wake of Bobby's ice slide, which, you know what, I've been reading X-Men books for well over 30 years now, and I don't think I've ever noticed the remains of Bobby's ice slides. And it's just blocks. I'm not sure why. I mean, it's still quite cold out but we'll allow it, I guess. So, Kid Cool gets home, and he lets his teammates know about the 10-footer he just fought at the pond. 
And you want to hear something stupid? Nobody believes him. Nobody, they're like, oh, you imagined it. It's not like they, you know, don't live in the, uh, you know, fantastical Marvel universe, right? Where things like this happen hourly. So it's a little bizarre that they just don't believe him. They're like, ah, you've been working too hard. Ah, you're just seeing things. Ah, you're just pranking us. So, I don't know, it seems kind of stupid. Um, now Cyclops then enters the house to reveal that he happened across Bobby's clothes at the pond. Didn't see a big robot there. I gotta ask you, Scott, did you happen to see the great big hole in the ice that the robot left? Ish. Anyway, the gang leaves Iceman behind to head into the backyard for some practice. So, here's the thing here. And, you know, stop me if you heard this one before, but we're gonna put a pin in the absolute ridiculousness that is the X-Men not believing their 16-year-old member. I mean, he's gotta almost be 17 by now, right? Uh, anyway. What we see next is Xavier training the Mimic. Or kind of just watching the Mimic fly around and telling him he's a good boy. So, let's beat the old drum here. Charles Xavier doesn't know the X-Men, right? He's certainly not associated in any way with any sort of mutants. And yet, they're engaging in a training session on his lawn with flyers, like flying characters here. Don't they have a danger room for this? Eh, um, okay. Anyway, Mimic is Cal Rankin all over the place, uh, being a real dickhead. Cyclops asks the professor for permission to take the Mimic down a peg, to which he gets a face full of white stuff from Cal's hand, which is to say, slushy ice, you pervs. Uh, this prompts a big ol' fracas to break out, with the original five teaming up to take on the Mimic again. I mean, how many times do we need to see this scene? Uh, well, thankfully, Xavier is just as tired of it as we are. <laughs> he is sick of the shenanigans, and he decides to tell Cal that, you know, maybe this isn't working out. Maybe this isn't a good fit. Well, Chuck, you were the one who hired him, and you were the one who made him the leader of the team. How could you have possibly have ever known this might blow up in your face? It's not like you can read minds or anything, right? <clears throat> Xavier dismisses Cal and says that the X-Men will take on Factor 3 without him. Oh yeah, Factor 3, I forgot about that. Uh, we're also reminded that Banshee appeared last issue and has since returned to his homeland, which is to say Ireland. I'm not sure why they don't just say that here. Anyway, uh, Cal says that he will pack up his stuff and be out of Xavier's non-hair within the hour. We shift scenes for one panel to see Xavier toiling away in his dungeon slash basement, uh, this is only to remind us of that heavy wooden door that we just found out about last issue, and how behind it is his deepest, darkest secret, his most tragic failure. So I'm guessing that behind that door is uh, Maury McTaggart and a bunch of seeds. Next up, we head back outside to the X-Men, in full costume, playing football on the lawn. Again, isn't this supposed to be a secret headquarters? Like, why are they in their blue and golds? Um... Anyway, uh, Psyche throws the ball, and it's intercepted by the Super Adaptoid. And uh, the kids are pretty shocked that Bobby's, you know, great pumpkin actually exists. And it's time to fight for like four pages. The Adaptoid proves to be far too much for the combined forces of the Uncanny X-Men, which is pretty pathetic. And maybe a little bit of foreshadowing to AVX, where the X-Men were pretty quickly and easily jobbed out by the Avengers. Just then, the Mimic returns in order to uh, tell off the do-gooders, and, uh, well, he happens across the fallout of the fight. Now the X-Men are all in, like, all in various forms of KO, right? They're knocked out or just laying there. 
while the adaptoid kind of just stands there looking stupid. And I mean, that's not an indictment on you know his behavior. He just looks stupid. Well, it gets a good look at the mimic and realizes that, hey, you know what? This Jagoff's got all the X-Men's powers, so why not try to adaptoidize him? And Cal is quick to agree because, well, he's a moron. Uh, now, the adaptoid bathes Calvin in these yellow rays, and as this goes down, Cyclops wakes up enough to warn that the big bot is just looking to make Mimic his robot slave. And the adaptoid ain't even, like, lying about this. He's pretty quick to cop. He's like, yup, that's exactly what I'm doing here. Unfortunately, the Mimic still got some of his own mojo, so he shoves the adaptoid, and we get another few pages of fighting. The battle rages into the sky, the Mimic powered by his angel wings, the adaptoid using his wasp wings. The baddie grabs Cal by the shoulders and sets to sucking in his powers once and for all. The thing of it is, Cal kind of lets him, because Cal realizes that his powers are artificial, so that when the bot does the thing, it causes like a feedback loop or something equally nebulously scientific to occur. Uh, Maybe Cal tried to mimic the bot's powers too? I I really don't know. And what's more, I don't think it matters all that much. Uh, The adaptoid reverts to its original form, which is to say like a blank white mannequin, and it falls into a nearby body of water. Where exactly? I thought all the nearby ponds were iced over. Did, did, they, did he really like control his fall well enough to land in the Atlantic or something? I don't know. The mimic begins to lose his powers as well. His little angel wings or his big angel wings turn into little angel wings. They start to uh, wane away, and he starts his own plummet. Thankfully for him, Warren Woythington the Thoid is there to swoop in and catch him. We wrap up with Calvin Rankin, once again depowered. He claims that this uh, you know, whole Michigas taught him the value of friendship, and now he's ready to become a real boy. Or, I mean, his own man. And, uh, well, that's where we leave it. Next episode, we have the X-Men and the Warlock. Not that Warlock, and not that Warlock either. This is uh, yet another. So, what did we think about this issue? Um... I guess we solved the problem of the Mimic. Again. (laughs) I really don't know what the point of bringing him back was at this point. It was uh, kind of a non-factor. It seemed to only serve to put a little bit of dissension into the ranks, which I don't know that we really needed. I mean, I think we have enough dissension with the weird love triangle with Scott, Jean, and Warren. I don't know what the point of Calvin Rankin was here. It was just, we need this guy to be a jerk? I... I mean, he he basically just served as the mimic ex machina, right? He just comes in at the end, does his thing. He's taking Professor X's role. There we go. Uh, In the first, you know, 25 issues of this, we had Professor X swooping in at the last minute to take all the credit, all the glory, and make the X-Men look like jerks. And here we've got Cal doing the very same thing. So maybe Chuck just passed the torch to the menacing mimic. Uh, What else we got here? Um, I mean, I think I talked about this enough during the synopsis, but... The mansion's supposed to be a secret location. Well, not a secret location in that, I mean, it is a mansion. It is something that exists. It's something that people see, but I don't think people are supposed to know that there uh, you know, are mutants living there and mutants training there and that it serves as the base of operations for the X-Men. I feel like they're getting a little bit sloppy with that. Um, I mean, they've been sloppy with that since issue two, but it's getting harder and harder to kind of lampshade it, I guess. I don't know, maybe I'm a little too hyper-focused on it, but when you have a perfectly good danger room, why would you ever 
ever train in full costume or play football in full costume on the lawn. Just seems silly. Now, as for the X-Men not believing that Bobby was attacked by a great big robot, I don't even know where to start with that because, I mean, they get attacked every issue, right? <laughs> they kind. This is kind of the routine here. They get attacked, they get together, they do the thing. So the fact that they don't believe Bobby here is a little unfounded, a little stupid. <laughs> and I didn't really care for it, but I guess it facilitated the... Actually, it didn't facilitate anything. <laughs> It really didn't facilitate anything, but uh, it was what it was. Uh, Overall, I mean, there isn't much to say about this issue here. We get another reminder that uh, there's a great big wooden door in the dungeon that uh, maybe we'll find out what's behind there. Uh, Off the top of my head, I cannot remember what's behind there, so I'm kind of looking forward to that. And I'm also looking forward to issues of this book with uh, without the mimic in them. So I guess uh, we can only go up from here. And while on the upward trajectory, let's hop into the mutant mailbox here. We got a lot of letters from some first... Well, actually, they're all first-time writers in, because, as you know, your humble host is insane and is tracking all of these letter hacks to see how many of them are uh, prolific and to, I don't know, do some very time-wasty things here in... Trying to track their uh, opinions and see how their opinions change It's silly, nobody's going to care about it But I don't know, it, it tickles me in uh, in very odd ways So let's hop into the first one here We got Robert in NYC Now he commends Roy Thomas on getting the X-Men moving again After the doldrums of the Magia Nefaria story arc Yeah, I agree uh, He says he wasn't sure how the Cool Cool Can story was going to go at first But he wound up liking it at the end of the day He loved the fight scenes and he cites them as being among Werner Roth's best work to date Well, you had me there at the start, Robert, but you lost me with that one I mean, Werner's work was good there, but the story kind of sucked He loved the fact that Cyclops blasted the angel And he wants the Mimic to become a full-fledged member of the team Stan says, hey, Robert, your wish is my command, though, sadly, this is being printed in the issue where the Mimic leaves the team after his all-too-brief stint. Stan then calls out Bobby the Letter Hack for not commending his eye-straining editing, which is to say, you know, come on, Stan needs some love too. He really, really needs your love, so don't forget about him. Next up, we got Nancy in Indiana, who is a college freshman and a Marvel fan of five years. She thinks Stan's ruining the X-Men by removing Jean Grey from the team, and says she can re- she can appreciate a long, drawn-out romance arc, but you know what? This Scott and Jean thing's getting ridiculous. And I mean, really now? I feel like they've only been pressing the fact that they've got the mutual hot pants for each other for like a year, right? So how quickly do you want this story over? Uh, should they be married by now? Well, let's hold that thought. <clears throat> Uh, She is not a fan of the continued stories approach. She would like arcs to only be limited to like two or three parts at most. And I think our longest story to date was the Sentinel story, which was three parts. So you're welcome. Hmm. Now she only says this as she missed an issue uh, of a story while moving. She thinks Marvel's great, but maybe a bit confused from time to time. And Stan basically says, hey, don't worry about Jean. I mean, we're seeing more of Jean now since she quit the team than we did when she was on the team. And this is kind of becoming one of his go-to answers. You know, don't worry about Jean. It kind of feels like Bobby's booties back in the day, how that question was asked like in every third or fourth letter. It's Now it's all about, when's Jean coming back? To which it's like, have you been reading the book? (laughs) Jean never left. 
Next up, we got Ronald in California, who used to love the X-Men, but now thinks the crummy villains they're being pitted against are dragging them down. He says that they should only have the X-Men fighting other mutants, and to leave the non-mutant baddies to the rest of the Marvel books. And Stan's like, dude, we tried going that route. And he's kind of right, right? Uh, He says he tried having the X-Men fight the Brotherhood, but people complained. And Stan, you know, I love you, but uh, he didn't say they should be fighting the same evil mutants all the time, just other mutants. So I can kind of see where Ronald's coming from, I can kind of see where Stan's coming from, but... I mean, to say that people complained when they fought Magneto every single issue for like 15 issues, that's, you know, maybe a little tiresome. Next up, we got Andrew in Brooklyn. He recently bought an X-Men back issue. Uh, He doesn't actually call it a back issue. He just refers to it as an old issue. Now, it was X-Men number 10, the Savage Land issue, which we covered in episode mm, something or another on this show. I'm sure we did, (laughs) but that's my inner forgetful Stan Lee talking there. I don't remember what episode number it was, but I'm sure it's pretty easy to find. Anyway, Andrew calls Stan and Cerebro out for not pointing out one particular mutation from this issue. And he's not talking about Kazar, because Kazar's just a dude. But Zabu. Hmm, you see, in this issue, Zabu's got a stub tail like a normal saber-toothed tiger. But in Daredevil issue number 12, Zabu's got a long tail. So what's up with that? Stan replies with uh, basically a whoops <laughs> and an offer of a deluxe no prize for Andrew. And I'm guessing... If this was calling out Roy Thomas on a mistake like this, he would have a very, very long explanation as to why Zabu had a long tail. But thankfully, it's Stan, so we don't have to deal with that. Next up, we got D. Potter in Jersey. Now, he calls out the angel for becoming a vindictive troublemaker. You know, he says that he's causing dissension in the group by turning the Scott and Jean thing into a love triangle. He goes as far as to say that he used to consider the angel his favorite X-Man. Wow, really? Has anybody else in the world ever said that? Huh. But, he says, if Angel keeps up this behavior, he's going to go back to boosting for the beast. Oh, my stars and garters. Um, Now, he wants Scott and Jean to get married. He cites that Reed and Sue got married, and Spidey is planning to. Well, I don't remember that last part, and Stan doesn't either. Stan kind of teases old DP about knowing more about the book than its author. And Stan's talking Spidey, of course. The Scott Warren gene thing doesn't even warrant a mention in his reply. Next, Roger in California. And uh-oh, we got a continuity cop here. Now, Roger is a relatively new reader, having started with issue number 14. And he asks Stan about Xavier's handicap. He cites how the professor first said he lost the uses of his legs during a childhood accident... But then, it was revealed that his legs were crushed by Lucifer. So, Stan, which is it? And Stan does the Stan thing here. It's pretty funny. It's pretty cute, actually. He spends about a paragraph and a half literally hemming and hawing, like pretending to be too distracted to answer the question, before uh, coming around to the conclusion that, uh, yeah, the Lucifer thing, that's what it was. That's what it was. And he says that he figured out the answer by studying Brand Ech books because they're edited so poorly. Okay, then. Next up, Donnie in Texas. Now, Donnie says that X-Men number 26 was the best Marvel mag ever. To which I wonder if that's the only Marvel mag he's ever read. He wants Scott and Jean to get hitched. More about this marriage stuff. 
He says that Scott should have his deadly eye power taken away, even though that would make it so Scott wouldn't be Cyclops anymore and wouldn't be able to fight mutant baddies. Stan says that he would take Scott's powers away, but then they'd have to figure out a new code name for him, and, well, that's just too much work and trouble to go to. So Scott's just going to have to continue being collateral damage there. But uh, those were uh, our mutant mailbox missives here. From here, let's hop into the bullpen bulletins, also known as Nutty Notes, a nonsensical name-dropping featuring naturally non-essential news of the nation's top non-entities. Got through it, wow. Our first item is a reminder that this week is when the Marvel Superheroes TV specials will be hitting the airwaves. And Stan hopes that the next bullpen bulletins page will feature some feedback, and it kind of won't. Item, Marie Severin has taken over the art chores on Doctor Strange. Now, she's the sister of John Severin of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. fame. Uh, She took over because Bill Everett has decided to leave Doc Strange so he can go back to his beloved creation, Namor the Submariner. Item, the Hulk strip has had a lot of artists, and Stan says he can name at least six powerhouse pencilers who have had the honor over the past little while. But now, Stan thinks he's found the perfect permanent penciler for the gig. And that man is Gil Kane, who will last four issues. Item, Stan suggests that at the rate they're adding to it, the Fantastic Four might have the biggest cast of characters ever collected in a colossal comic book. And so he's going to name them. (laughs) We got the four themselves, right? Thing, Mr. Fantastic, Invisible Girl, and the Torch. We got six Inhumans who aren't worth naming. Uh, Their dog, the Black Panther, Wyatt Wingfoot, the Wizard, Sandman, Alicia Masters, Silver Surfer, Doctor Doom, and dozens. And dozens of Yancey Street gangbangers. Okay, cool story, Stan. Uh, Item. Roy Thomas is scripting more and more each month. He's putting in the chops on X-Men, Sergeant Fury, the Avengers, and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And Stan says, hey, Roy's nearly as overworked as I am. And so, the man went out and poached Gary Friedrich from an editorial gig at a Midwest newspaper for some script assists. And we'll be seeing Gary pretty soon. Item from the Did You Know department, and uh, I wouldn't blame you if it didn't, because Marvel doesn't talk about this all that much. So, did you know that the House of Ideas publishes Western comics? Four of them, in fact. We've got Kid Called Outlaw, Rawhide Kid, The Two-Gun Kid, and now Ghost Rider. So even though they're not listed in the Mighty Marvel checklist, buy them anyway. Our final item is uh, Stan wishing all of us the best for the hustlin' and bustlin' holiday season. So, um, I mean, as this episode's coming out, we're a few days shy of Halloween, which means that we're also a few days shy of Christmas music popping up on the radio again. So, uh, yes, I echo that sentiment. (laughs) I wish all of us a happy and safe holiday season, and... uh, I'm sure I'll do so several more times in the uh, interim between now and uh, the end of 2021. From here, we go to our mighty, mighty Marvel checklist. We're going to start with Fantastic Four number 60, which features the Inhumans, also Doctor Doom and the Silver Surfer, all for 12 cents. So, um, see, maybe 6 cents for Doom, 5 cents for the Surfer, and a penny for the Inhumans. And uh, you might want to get change for that penny as well. We got Spider-Man number 46, where Spidey gets a new baddie, the Shocker, and also a new apartment, and a big surprise. And I looked through it, and uh, maybe the surprise is that Flash Thompson got drafted. That might be the surprise. We got Avengers number 37, Avengers vs. the Ultroids, and Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch officially back in action. 
Daredevil number 25. Uh, Dee Dee introduces his twin brother to Foggy and Karen, and he also fights the Leapfrog. Thor 137 features Thor versus the Trolls. Strange Tales 154 has Nick Fury versus Hydra's Dreadnought, and Doctor Strange versus Umar with deadly ramifications for Clea. Suspense number 87, Namor does something, and Hulk versus the Stranger. Yes, our Stranger, the one who took Magneto away. And yes, he actually does mention his run-ins with the X-Men, but that's really about it, so we won't be we won't be covering that story here. We got Sergeant Fury number 39, which features I mean, stop you if you heard this one before. The Howlers versus the Nazis. Still. Then it's Reprint-O-Rama in Marvel Collector's Items Classics number 7, Fantasy Masterpieces number 7, and Marvel Tales number 7. Popping down to the bottom of the page, we got our Merry Marvel Marching Society little box, I guess. We got 26 new members, and uh, one of them is Jim Lee of Utica, Michigan. Uh, it's not our Jim Lee, sadly. It's uh, just a Jim Lee, but uh, that's the only name that really stood out to me. Now, we don't have any uh, mailbag today. Uh, we do have a voicemail, but I'm going to save that one for next time because I am running late for something. So uh, we'll do that one next time. But I do want to make sure to thank everyone who engaged with the program and the social media and all that stuff. So on Twitter, I want to thank Tom Panarese, Walt Nealon, Dave Schultz, the Between the Pages blog, Jeremiah, Al Sedano, Billy D, Chris at BTO and Bat Books, 21st Century Boys, Marco Lujo, Ed Moore, R.C., Jesse D. Young, and Jason Colby. Over on Facebook, I want to thank Walt Neeland, Andrew Franklin, Jeremiah, Billy D., Joe Crawford, and Chris Bailey. And of course, I want to thank the wonderful supporters over at patreon.com slash xlapsed. I want to thank Andrew Franklin, Ed Moore, Walt Neeland, Jeremiah, Jason Colby, The Scary Stuff Podcast, Jesse D. Young, Damian, Peter McPherson, and Mark Jagger. Thank you all so much for believing in me and this little project. It uh, really does mean the world to me, so thank you. Now, if anybody out there would like to get a hold of me for any reason, you could do so very easily. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can shoot an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, or you can call into the X-Lapsed voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. For blog posts and show notes, you can head over to chrisisoninfiniteearth.com. You can join us on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. Of course, the complete audio archives are available at chrisandreggie.podbean.com, and... For a bunch of exclusive content and first-run content, you could pop over to uh, patreon.com slash xlapsed and check us out there. But I think that's all we got for today. I'd like to thank you all so much for joining me, and I uh, hope you're all happy to see the Essential X-Lapsed back. Uh, I know I am. <laughs> I know uh, after a few weeks of doing Original Recipe X-Lapsed, it's, uh, it's kind of refreshing to pop back into the Silver Age and to... Uh, Dig into the mail and dig into the bullpen bulletins. It's a, a really fun change of pace, and I hope you're enjoying it as well. But one more giant thank you, and until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. <laughs>